What I would like to talk about this evening is the way in which in our practice and in retreat that we're cultivating an inner climate or an inner environment of awakening, an inner environment that is really receptive to insight or to understanding. I just feel it's important to acknowledge that in, in meditation practice we, we have a, a certain path and we have a certain form and it is a path of development, it is a path of deepening. But I think you would probably be going too far to say that there is any technique or any practice which is going to guarantee enlightenment. You know, most practices don't come with that kind of guarantee. What our practices, uh, what the form that we use actually does, is that it helps us to cultivate an environment inwardly of listening, of sensitivity, and receptivity. A climate inwardly in which, which is most conducive to understanding, to seeing more and more deeply. Recently I came across a small piece of writing by Peter Lever that I'd like to share with you. It said, watermelons and meditation students grow pretty much the same way. Long periods of sitting till they ripen and grow all juicy inside. But when you knock them on the head to see if they're ready, sounds like nothing's going on. When I read this, it, it struck a certain chord of response in me, I must say. In seeing in retreats how we, we have, you know, long periods of sitting, long periods of walking, long periods of silence, and when you look, of course, at a retreat from the outside and sometimes from the inside too, it looks really like we're really not doing very much. I mean, we, we kind of sit around and then every once in a while we get out and we, we have something resembling a little walk around and we come and we sit around some much and some more. And it doesn't really look like an activity that is, you know, incredibly dynamic and probing and, you know, lively. It doesn't look like an activity where we're kind of wrestling with our demons and getting to grips with things. It doesn't look like there's a lot going on. And we also, perhaps it becomes more and more apparent to us in practice how difficult it is, really, to measure what is going on. How difficult it is to evaluate any sense of progress in meditation. I often feel like, like part of us would, would kind of like a practice where, where the signposts and the goals are really very definite. You know, that if we started this morning and said, you know, the goal of today is to get three breaths in a row. You know, and if you do that, you're successful. Or the goal of today is, you know, to have four steps when you're walking. 
without being distracted. And if you do that, you're successful. But we actually don't really set out a lot of goals in this practice. We don't set out a lot of milestones to achieve. Um, We don't dispense certificates, you know, of of achievement or, you know, certificates of, of worthiness as a meditation. Simply because, well, one reason very clearly is that there is no standard form of measurement. There is no standard form of experience. Um, No standard path, even, which everybody is traveling in exactly the same way. What you do when you come and sit is, is you are walking through your life. You're walking through, you're sitting through your own mind, your own heart, your own life. Your own experience, it is not going to be the same as anybody else's. And it is probably almost impossible to measure. You know, how do we measure insight? How do we measure understanding? How do we measure depth? How do we know? How do we know, even, that some, you know, the insights that we've been looking for or have been really longing for have actually come to us? I think sometimes that absence of goals or that absence of signposts can leave a certain insecurity in, in us, even a certain anxiety, you know, because culturally, professionally, socially, we're very much encouraged, you know, to have those milestones, to have those signs, to gain the certificates, to to be able to say, I know, I'm getting somewhere. In meditation, it's a little bit different because the place we're trying to get to is the place we already are. We're not trying to get to somewhere separate from where we are. We're not trying to become someone different than who we are. We are trying to understand where we are and who we are. This is something difficult to measure. It's probably really quite rare that anyone here would would come to an end of a sitting or an end of a walking or even to the end of a retreat and be able to articulate a list of what has been accomplished or what has been achieved, you know? It would be strange, you know, if we, we came around and interviewed you at the end of every sitting, you know, and said, you know, how far have you got? You know, what have you done? You know, what have you achieved? Where, where is the evidence? It, it's hard to find evidence or definitive signposts, no matter how much we long for them, of either what we've got rid of or what we've gained or what kind of progress we made. In fact, if we ask ourselves, you know, how, how are we doing? You know, how are we getting along on this path? It, we might even be tempted to say, well, I really don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. I think sometimes this is really the best answer. You know, I'm not getting anywhere. Maybe it's a kind of even a renunciation of some of that uh, almost kind of ego self um, drive inwardly, which is building itself upon what we can achieve or gain. And yet, I feel we, we sit with a sense of trust. 
that, that is basically much involved in this practice. That we sit cultivating the kind of trust and the kind of faith that we are ripening, that we are growing, that we are deepening, that we are doing actually what needs to be done, that we are doing what is asked of us. We certainly, I think, probably all of us appreciate that even though apparently outwardly, you know, this is not the most dynamic of activities that appears, we are certainly juicy inside. You know, if you reflect back on your day-to-day, just how many thoughts you have thought today. Innumerable. If you reflect back on your day-to-day, how many sensations, how many feelings you felt in your body that have changed from moment to moment, that have really spoken to you about the life of your body and really the life of all bodies? How many different voices, inner voices, have really come to visit you today? You know, the voices of liking, of disliking, of wanting, of not wanting, sometimes of judging, sometimes really shouting, obsessive inner voices, sometimes just that background commentator that seems to go on without cease. We hear the voice sometimes of doubt, the voice of the critic, the voice of the the, the strategizer. That's that whole inner world, that whole inner world that we start to sense is so alive, our inner world of our responses and our reactions. And it is juicy. It's not only today, as as you've listened inwardly, probably not only your own voices you've listened to, but all of the people that you brought with you on this retreat, you know, your friends, your enemies, the the conversations you never finished with your colleagues, you know, the arguments you're still having with your partner, you know, that continues to kind of ramble through our minds. And all our feelings about them, you know, the different aversions and boredom and, and, and joy and anxiety that is being here. This is really what we are awakening to. This is what we're learning to sense, learning to attend to, learning to receive. We start perhaps to understand in this practice that really we are invited to be here, to be present in this life, to learn how to take our seat in mindfulness amidst all the clamoring voices and the sensory information. They're really in awakening, we're really learning the art of receiving all of this, of being touched, of being awakened by it. And if you read much about this practice or this tradition, really what you hear over and over again is this message that awakening is really not going to be found anywhere outside of this body, this mind, this heart, this life. And that the practice of peace, the practice of awakening, is really very simple. It is learning 
to listen, learning to receive every unique moment. And then sometimes we feel very ambivalent about this. Part of us accepts, perhaps, the, the need or the logic or, or the obviousness of, of having to embrace our life as our teacher. And there's a part of us that probably would really like to transcend it, you know, have a different mind, you know, have a, have a different experience, you know, have a different body, you know, have some, some great breakthrough, you know, or, you know, some blissful, rapturous state, you know, rather than really feeling the wisdom of being invited to turn towards this moment, this reality. Part of us just wants to flee. Before we come on a retreat, before you ever come on a retreat, most people, you know, think a little bit about what their retreat's going to be like. You know, hopeful thoughts often, or, or sometimes kind of anxious thoughts too. Most people, before they come on retreats, you know, they've read the books, they listen to the stories, the horror stories. People have heard lots of those. And we also have heard the stories of rapture and bliss and breakthrough. Sometimes before we come on a retreat, we have a lot of thoughts about our retreat that's based on our own past experience, you know. Maybe experiences of agony that we would really hope we're not going to repeat. Or maybe experiences of ecstasy that we hope we are going to repeat. Most people come on retreat with some expectations. What we would like to happen. What we would like to see. What we would like to be able to let go of. What we hope to be able to get to. You know, probably, you know, many of you have heard a thousand times that it's, it's better not to have any expectations of your meditation. But personally, I often think this is kind of naive. Mm-hmm. Our expectations can actually be helpful. Some expectations can actually be helpful. They actually probably played a part in getting you here. You know, some of those expectations played a role in getting you here rather, you know, than, than taking a flight to Ibiza or, you know, vacation somewhere else. In a real way, I think many of our expectations kind of articulate our, our longings, our, our sense of possibility, our, our sense of personal vision are often actually expressed in our expectations. You know, when we, when we come to practice and when we come to retreat, you know, kind of hoping or expecting some kind of inner transformation, an inner change, an inner shift, that is actually an embodiment. Of, of that inner sense of possibility and vision. And that, that vision and that sense of possibility is actually really precious in practice and really important in practice. I mean, imagine, you know, would you come on a retreat, you know, if you felt that this was a path, you know, to, to more and more misery? You know, or, you know, if we put out in our advertising, you know, we, you know, you read Gaia House brochures and says, you know, inside meditation, you know, is a path to seeing clearly, to peace, to deepening and compassion. 
you know, this sounds good. You know, imagine if we put on our brochure, you know, it's like meditation, see your path to misery, you know, and make you hate yourself, you know, and it's boot camp and it's, re- it's really awful. You know, probably not many people would wish to be here. But there is something, I, I think, that is really communicated in the message or the teaching of med- meditation. There really has an answering response within ourselves. You know, that, that echoes somehow within ourselves. That, that possibility of death, the possibility of real compassion and authenticity, the possibility of freedom. That is part of our vision, and it actually it is fine if that is also part of our expectation. Sometimes I think we, we suffer from having too low expectations. That, that this actually is also, you know, really a, a path of suffering, to have too low expectations. It's fine to have expectations, and, and it's also really good to be uh, willing to be surprised. You know, that, that our experience is something very, very different than what we have expected. To have the willingness to have our expectations altered and changed in very real and in very good ways by the reality of our experience. I mean, none of us are going to guarantee what a single day, what a single sitting, what a single walking can be like, never mind the whole of a retreat. We would, of course, all love to have more of the ecstasy than the agony. But whether you find yourself, you know, residing in the heavenly realms, peace and serenity, or whether you find yourself being buffeted around the hell, more hell realms of resistance and tension and turmoil, you know this is secondary, really, really secondary. What is really primary and what is really much more significant is our willingness to learn. Our willingness to be awakened by what is. Our willingness to be deepened by what we experience. The contents of our experience here, from one sitting to the next, one has to really not take them too seriously or draw too many conclusions. What is far more significant is to see that these are the places where we actually really learn about compassion about receptivity, about openness, about balance. Meditation practice is not intended to produce a standard form of experience. You know, I, I, it's not intended to produce in everybody here, you know, a certain uninterrupted state of concentration or, or this particular feeling or this particular sensation, you know, that we're going to have this standard experience that somehow we add to our, our spiritual portfolio. It's not intended to do that. Meditation really is intended to cultivate a very profound authenticity, very profound freedom that is rooted in understanding each moment of our experience as it is. It's really, this practice is really intended to very radically change the course of our heart and mind, to radically alter the course of our heart and mind, 
And anything is possible within that. But the practice begins in really a very simple way. It is a practice of coming closer to the moment. It's a practice of coming closer and closer to what is. Of coming, of aligning ourselves somewhat with the way things actually are. Even when the way things actually are doesn't fit in with our expectations or dreams. Meditation, I think, is a kind of crash course in reality. And, you know, on one level, we can feel like we get too big a dose of it all at once. And those moments when we feel like we get too big a dose of, of the way things actually are, those are the moments actually we want to flee the most. But I think more and more in our practice, we start to come to understand that it is learning to live in harmony with the way things are, learning to open to the way things are, that this may really be the only place in our life where we really discover genuine peace, where we really discover genuine balance and understanding. There are some very <clears throat> essential lessons that we learn in meditation. I think one of the universal lessons, something we all learn really quickly in this practice, is that we actually are not in control. That, you know, we've heard that a million times. It starts to come more and more true for us, more and more real for us. That everything that we experience in this world, in our bodies, in our minds, in our feelings, arises because of conditions, and we're not in control of everything that appears in this world. You know, you probably didn't get up to this morning and decide it was a good day for your back to ache. Your back aches. Can you control it? Can you decide to have a different back? To have a different form of experience? You probably didn't decide to get, get up this morning and decide that it was a good, really good day to be obsessive. Hmm? How many of the thoughts that you thought today did you consciously invite? And so you just, I think, I'll reflect on that. Hmm? How many, how, how often we felt that, you know, there's just these thoughts, <laughs> they just seem to come out of nowhere. And yet they don't come out of nowhere. We probably didn't decide, you know, after lunch that it, that it was, you know, how about an afternoon of aversion or an afternoon of dullness or an afternoon of agitation, you know. Well, we must have didn't come in the hall in that way with that expectation. We see that everything arises because of conditions. Hearing arises because there's sound. Sound is the condition for hearing to arise. Having a body is the condition for different sensations, different feelings to arise. Painful ones, pleasant ones, neutral ones. Having a mind is the condition for having lots of thoughts. You know, having the habit of, of dwelling or entanglement 
is the condition for obsession or, 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 or wanting to flee. You know, birth is the condition for death. We can often really do ourselves a great disservice in this life by so much effort we put into trying to control the conditions that arise. You know, there's some noise you put in earplugs. You know, there's some discomfort in our body. Well, I think I'll just have a juicy fantasy. Or sometimes we just go to sleep. But we see that the more kind of resistance, you know, control is resistance. It's, it's resistance to the way things are. When we, when we can't accept or don't feel able to embrace the way things are, we try to fix them, we try to control them. And the result, control is a condition for agitation. It's not a condition for peace. The more that we try to, to resist what is, the more it feels oppressive to us, the more do we feel a victim of it, and the more powerless we feel. In the center I teach in, in California, um, there's a lot, really a lot, a lot growing population of wild turkeys on the land, and they tend to hang out in the car park. And when the yogis come on retreats, you know, and maybe there's like 50, 60, 70 shining cars, Californian cars, in the car park. Um, and the sun shines on them, and the turkeys kind of do their strolling through the car park thing, and they see themselves reflected in the paint, the bodywork of the car. And curiously, their immediate response is that it's an enemy. So they start pecking their reflection over and over and over again, you know, and they get really ferocious, they get really worked up about it, you know, they fan out their feathers, you know, and they squawk and peck and peck and peck, which is actually really quite amusing when it's not your car. <laughs> if it was your car, you'd take it much more seriously. But as you can see, it, it, it's that place of wanting something to go away and trying to make it go away. And I often think of like turkey mind that, that arises in meditation a lot, you know. We want something to go away. We, we want to get rid of it. We want to make it different than what it is. So we, we pet at it, you know. We, we try and push it or we, we judge it or we wrestle with it or we, we condemn it or we try and pretend it's not happening. And the more we do that, the more we, we feel to be convinced by it, the more we feel imprisoned by it. it it's the nature of resistance. There is another way, of course, you know, to acknowledge that we, we aren't always and can't always control our universe, our world, our experience. In a way, there's a kind of refuge and a sort of relief in that. Even though it can feel terrifying, there's a kind of a relief in it. But if the other part, the wisdom part, is recognizing that just because we understand we are not in control doesn't mean we are helpless. We are actually not helpless. One of the other conditions that we actually introduce into our life is the condition of mindful attention. That rather than following the path of resistance, we're actually following very consciously the path of engagement. 
the path of connection, which is also the path of investigation, of interest, of welcoming. So we're not pecking anymore at our minds, at our experience. Instead, we're turning our attention towards them, to receive them, to understand what is this, what is being experienced. And we begin to really understand that in the presence of mindfulness, there are actually no enemies. There are actually no enemies. I mean, the countless things that that we tend to think of as being a distraction, being an enemy, are mostly the things we have aversion for and feel unwilling to welcome. Mindfulness is something of an antidote to aversion. It's something of an antidote resistance. We learn to be with what is, rather than demanding that it goes away, understanding that it's just this, just this, that is asking to be taken care of. This is what mindfulness does. It takes care of this moment. It takes care of this feeling, this sensation, this thought, this interaction, this interface. This perhaps seems obvious, that it's just this, it's just this. But it's also liberating. I mean, you think, you know, what difference, you know, it's about letting go of the turkey mind. It's about discovering a different kind of mind, which is not dividing the world between friends and enemies. Mindfulness is sometimes said to be a shortcut to happiness. I think one of the other really, perhaps very important, very primary lessons we learn in meditation is about our inclination to draw conclusions and and to believe our conclusions to be the absolute truth. And this is such a powerful tendency in us. To really just say, I am, you are, this is, you know, I know. There's such such a, a kind of often a security and safety within our conclusions. And yet the truth is that a lot of our conclusions, I think, really actually endanger our well-being. They, they lead to a, a kind of contractedness and, and disconnection. And they certainly very often exile us from learning, exile us from being surprised. And they also deny, of course, the essential reality of change. You know, our conclusions tend to make everything stay the same, don't they? When I say you are, you know, you are such a negative person, you know, it's kind of like you're you're that forever in my mind. You know, there's actually really no no room there that can recognize impermanence. When I say I am, you know, I am such a failure. It's such a, there's this denial of reality. There's no room for change. And yet it's such, it's such a strong inclination, a powerful inclination, you know, I think Fred talked about it earlier today, you know, but, you know, how often we draw conclusions based on the contents of our experience, and rather than on our way of seeing it, you know, we, we have a, a sitting that's agitated, you know, and it's, oh, yeah, I'm a disastrous meditator, I'll never be any good at this, you know, total failure, I'm always going to be like this, and... And, you know, and then we get into the whole story, don't we? 
you know, about how, you know, how I failed at being a girl guide, you know, and I failed at this, you know, and I failed at that, you know. Okay, then we get into the whole story, you know. We, we have a sitting that's relatively present, you know. Another conclusion, we, we have total amnesia about that previous conclusion, you know. And suddenly, oh, oh you know, my future is a hermit looming before me, you know. <laughs> you know, the next great spiritual teacher is coming. This is going to go on and on and on, you know. And we, it, it's kind of like permeates our life, you know. We, you know, our roommates, you know, our roommates, you know, maybe they, they left the door open inadvertently. Oh, this insensitive bore, you know. How am I going to live with this person for the next seven days? You know, it's going to be a nightmare, you know. The next minute they do something kind, you know. Oh, you know, such, such delight, you know. Such a benefactor they are with their touch, with their move. You know, it's, it's always, it, the, the mind is always wanting to be able to put itself in this place of I know. It, it's called, it, it's, it's a kind of seed of dwelling and it's born of dwelling, you know, obsession. We start to think about the same thing over and over. We start to replay the same thoughts over and over. And we see how agitated we become. And then, of course, then when we have a conclusion based on the contents of our experience, if it's unpleasant, we want to get rid of it. If it's pleasant, we want to hold on to it. We start to live, you know, perceive our conclusions as being the, the, the totality of our, our reality. Once when I was sitting in a monastery in Thailand, you know, and I, before I went to Asia, I shared with many other people very romantic images of, you know, the peace and serenity of Asian monasteries. Mostly, my experience is that Asian monasteries are almost always in a state of construction. Something's always being built. They are some of the noisiest places I've ever been to in my entire life. And I really should just say personally, I was very, very disappointed in this, extremely disappointed. In fact, I was enraged. A lot of the time I was in monasteries, I spent my time in a state of rage, <laughs> thinking of different ways of how to sabotage. <laughs> but one time I remember being in this monastery, you know, and, and of course it was being in a state of construction, the scaffolding was being put up, you know, and the dogs were barking, the radios were playing, you know, and the villagers were visiting, and, you know, everybody was always busting around, there was always all this noise, and I was curious. I was curious. And, and of course, at night time, it was actually quite quiet, you know, but I, I couldn't speak a wink, you know, because I was so, uh, so angry. And of course, I was always, already anticipating how it was going to be the next day, you know. I was already, I couldn't sleep because I was anticipating how noisy and how disturbed I was going to be the next day. It never, never occurred to me how much I was disturbed by the nature of my own thoughts. You know, and I remember going to the abbot, you know, once in, the, in this state of absolute frustration and saying to him, you know, how can you possibly expect anybody to meditate with this? How can I meditate with this? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, how can you not? How can you not? And it's always, it stayed with me always, that response. You know, I hate this sore we said, you know, I want it to go away. How can I meditate with this? But well, how can you not? You know, you, you have that obsessive thought running through your mind, and you think, I can't meditate with this. You know, when this is over, 
Then I'm going to meditate. Well, how can you not? Or, or sometimes people come and say, you know, oh, I'm sick today. You know, I can't meditate. You think, how can you not? Where are you going to go? Where would you go if you're not present with that? You know, where do we go? We go into places of, of denial. We go into fantasies. We go to sleep. We go into daydreams. We go away. We abandon really ourselves. How can we not? We start to see that mindfulness actually is really inclusive. It's really inclusive. It's about this. And it's not about just, it, it's learning not to define ourselves by the contents of our experience. Learning not to draw conclusions about ourselves based on the content of our experience. But learning more and more to find our home actually within the seeing, within the mindfulness, within the awareness, rather within the changing, fleeting content. We often sit with things that are not always easy. You know, we sit with mind states that are quite difficult, you know, sleepiness, aversion, restlessness, doubt, if it's not doubt, we find ourselves arguing with the world. Sometimes we sit with a body that's not always easy or a mind that is agitated. And very often we're tempted to conclude that this is really bad news. You know, it's a sign of disaster, a sign of personal unworthiness. How do you know that? You know, that, that, that sitting that we were so tempted to conclude is a, is a, is a miserable failure, a disaster. That's actually the place where sometimes we, we really do learn some of the deepest lessons, some of the most transforming qualities of patience, of commitment, of acceptance, of kindness. Sometimes those, those moments we tend to conclude are disastrous when we don't abandon them, those are often the moments actually when we really learn about changing the course of our heart and mind. We learn to walk different pathways. Sometimes those sittings that we're so tempted to refer to, you know, that was a good sitting. How do we know? Very often what we call a good sitting is, is one that kind of fits in with our images of what meditation should look like. You know, often our images that we're not too disturbed. But actually, that sitting that we're describing seems so good. You know, that might be the sitting where we're most reinforcing our tendency towards grasping and clinging, towards defining ourselves by the contents of our experience. I think we understand, we start to understand in a retreat, you know, that we are really replaying our life tapestry. And we're not trying to get rid of it, but to understand it. To really understand what causes pain and what leads to happiness. To learn how to let go, to release some of those conclusions. That, that can be terrifying to us because then we, we actually need to say that we don't know. 
but we need to go into that place of not knowing, which I think is sometimes both equally terrifying and mysterious to us. I think another of the primary lessons we learn in the first few days of retreat really penetrates to the heart of this tradition that's really central to this teaching. What the Buddha taught really through his life, one of his central teachings actually, was about unsatisfactoriness. That there is unsatisfactoriness in this life. Sometimes pain and sometimes just unsatisfactoriness. That there is a cause and that there is an end and that there is a way to the end of sorrow and conflict and struggle. The Buddha talked a lot about what is called dukkha, sometimes translated as suffering, but I don't think that's quite right. But dukkha actually means unsatisfactoriness. Now some of that unsatisfactoriness, you know, we're not exempt from it. You know, none of us are exempt from aging or sickness or loss. You know, having a perpetual pleasure or immortality or an ageless body, these, these are actually not options available to any of us. And this is dukkha. That's well, one aspect of dukkha. Now, sometimes this is, this teaching on dukkha, you know, because in, in the Buddhist tradition they talk a lot about dukkha. But sometimes interpreted as being terribly grim, you know, like this really invisible, down, depressed tradition. But it's actually a teaching of liberation, it's actually a teaching of happiness. Which teaches us about the end of dukkha. This is actually primary. And it's actually about the end of dukkha. So Buddha talked about dukkha, and he also talked about dukkha dukkha, or double dukkha. And this is when we add the extra layers of suffering and struggle to unsatisfactoriness or pain that we cannot avoid. It's like if you go out the door, you know, and you stub your toe on a rock. One level of dukkha is your toe hitting the rock. It is painful. It would be painful for us all. Dukkha dukkha is the narrative we add to that experience. Who put that rock there? You know, why am I so careless? Why is life so unfair? I can't possibly, you know, it's a dangerous world. I can't go out there. That's double dukkha. A double dukkha, you know, is perhaps when we have a, a sensation in our back. You know, it's a sensation in your back, that's what it is. That's just dukkha. A double dukkha is, you know, I'm going to die. I'm going to die of this, you know. We have different mind states that appear. Aversion, dullness, agitation. It's just what they are. They're mind states. They're unsatisfactory. It's true. But then there's double dukkha. You know, it's going to last forever. It's never going to change, you know. I'm the only one who's experiencing this. Everybody else in this room is, a, you know, budding Buddha, you know. That's double dukkha. It's the extra layers of the narrative, the story, the identification, the clinging, you know. If you walk out the door and you trip over somebody's shoes in the hallway, it's just a simple actuality, isn't it? If you tripped over somebody's shoes. And the double duke is, you know, oh, I bet everybody saw that. They all know how unmindful I am, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's double duke. This actually is optional. <laughs> this is optional. Double duke is optional. This is truly optional. We actually don't, we are not obliged to do this. 
It is not intrinsic to having a human mind and body and heart that we have to have double dukkha. We are not obliged to do that. This is where our practice is teaching us to release, to let go of the extra layers, to come over and over again to the simplicity of just what is, to find that here we find peace. We suffer not in the simple truths of each moment. We suffer in the extra layers of story and judgment and reactivity. We don't really have to do this. We can learn to release the causes of suffering. We see that when we are not present with what is, that very often we're, we're caught up in not so much in mindfulness practice but in postponement practice. You know, when craving and aversion are very powerful abandoning features. You know, as long as there's craving, as long as there's aversion, for whatever it is in this moment, we, we want to abandon it. And then we practice postponement practice. We can, strangely enough, we often equate being present with the absence of the unpleasant. You know? And we think, when this is over, I'm going to be really present. You know? When, when, I, when I've really kind of got the right posture, then I'm going to be really present, you know. When I finish this, this awful obsession, boy, then I'm going to be really present, you know. Or when I've run through this juicy fantasy one more time, then I'm going to be present, I'm going to be so present, you know. Or when I've got, you know, got a different mind, you know, or had an attitude transplant, then I'm going to be so present, you know. It's this kind of postponement practice when we equate being present with only having pleasant sensations. And that, that is actually a kind of mindfulness, we, we're thinking of mindfulness practice with this in, inbuilt aversion element. And it is not mindfulness practice, it's postponement practice. It's not always easy to remember that, you know, all the experiences that we have in our mind, body, and heart, there are no obstacles to peace. There are no obstacles to stillness, there are no obstacles to awareness. The very often our obstacle to peace, our obstacle to awareness is actually the aversion, the resistance, or the craving. Postponement practice is a turning away from what is. Mindfulness practice is turning toward. You know, last, last year I was corresponding with a man who was on death row in a Florida prison. And he, he wrote to me and he, he told me that, you know, twice a day, he and several other inmates would pull out his apples from underneath their, bench, underneath their benches and they would sit together for an hour twice a day. And I found this so remarkable. You know, because they said so they sit there, you know, that it's constantly noisy, sometimes they're being jeered at, there's radios blaring. He said, where else can I go? Now that just struck me of that remarkable willingness to just be there. Just be there. This is a story called Soft and it's often presented as a kind of model of renunciation, which, which it is in many ways. But I really think for many people in truth, it's a much greater renunciation to discover really what it means to be at home, to be at home in their body, to be at home in their mind, to be at home in their world, 
I think that for many people, you know, there's, there's often a kind of practice of almost a kind of unconscious renunciation or unconscious homelessness. We're, we're, we're fleeing from ourselves, fleeing from the moment in, into fantasy or avoidance or denial or, or, or dating, into the past, into the future, and abandoning ourselves. I think for many of us in this path, to, to find the willingness to be at home in our life, to be at home in this moment, to renounce the inclination to flee, that sometimes this is the greatest of all renunciations. This is the greatest of all renunciations. We learn to come back to ourselves. We learn to come back to this moment to cultivate mindfulness, not in order to suffer, but in order to find a way to the end of struggle. All the time in coming back to ourselves and learning to listen and learning to receive, we're really cultivating a climate of awakening, a climate of receptivity and listening, of learning to embrace the challenge of being here. It is a practice of intimacy, being intimate with ourselves and being intimate with all things. We have just a couple of moments, kindly together.